We've been in an extraordinary series that's coming to a conclusion this morning. Next week, we'll be starting a, a new series that I think it will be apropos for the season that we're in. But as for today, the series that we've been in is a series that's studying a few chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and it's been designed to drive home one very powerful central tenet of the Christian faith, and that is the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, the centerpiece of the Christian faith, the earliest creedal statement of the Christian faith is this one line that Jesus is Lord. That's why we titled this series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives. It's to declare that he is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our surrender, that the only one that is worthy of our trust, our faith, and surrender is Jesus. But that's a bold statement, and it was bold from the very beginning. To declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, is to say that Caesar is not. That was what the first century Christians had to deal with. In our day of so much religious pluralism, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that other religions are not. To say that Jesus is Lord is a statement that demands supporting evidence. You can't just simply throw that out there without having some supporting evidence for that. And that's what this series has been designed to present to you. That Jesus declared himself to be God, but he not only declared it with his words, he affirmed it with his deeds. Now, in order for anybody to be God, they have to have what theologians have classically called the omnis. They have to have four attributes, these characteristics that only God has. I'll just mention them to you. You can take notes if you uh, want to write some of these things down. But there are four omnis that... Uh, has to be possessed in order for someone to declare that they are God. One is omniscience, to be all-knowing. The word omni, that prefix, means all. Omniscience, science, to be all-knowing. Omnipresence, to be throughout all time. Present throughout all time. Eternality is the way we would talk about it. Omnipotence, all-powerful, to have all power as we just said, and dominion, authority. And then finally, finally, omnibenevolence, omnibenevolence, to be all-loving, to be the embodiment of love, to have compassion through and through. Now, you can't have these characteristics in part. The Bible says that it pleased the Lord that the fullness of the deity of the Godhead would dwell in Christ bodily. He had the fullness of these in him. And this is what the series has demonstrated as we have shown through text after text how he commands nature, how he casts out demons, how he cures sickness. Over and over again, he is demonstrating that he, that he has omniscience, that he has omnipresence, that he has omnipotence, that he is also omnibenevolent. And this morning, we're going to look at another text of Scripture with two stories, both given to us very specifically under the superintending of the Holy Spirit as Mark writes it to drive home the point that, yes, Jesus is all-powerful, and yes, Jesus is all-loving. And how many praise God that we have a Savior that is both, all-powerful and all-loving. There are other religions that will boast of an all-powerful God that does not care about his creation. 
There are other religions that will boast of a compassionate God, but it's not powerful enough to have authority over time, over nature, over our situations. But only Christianity uh, purports a God who is both transcendent above his creation and imminent and intimately involved in his creation. So we look to Mark's gospel this morning, and what we're going to see as we examine the text today and what we would call a, a, a sandwich of stories, two stories in, in one, is we're going to see how Jesus' healing ministry plays itself out. Now let me just say something about Jesus' healing ministry that I think we get wrong. And this is going to be really important. I think that when we read scriptures about the healing ministry of Jesus, we make the mistake of only seeing it from our vantage point, of only seeing what we want out of the deal and not seeing it from heaven's vantage point. Today, I want us to ask a bigger question. What is God up to in revealing himself? What is he showing us about his nature, about his purposes, about his intentions in the story that we read? Because if we're not careful, we'll think that we're the main character of our story. But I want to remind you every time I have an opportunity that we are both, uh, uh, at best, supporting actors. That the main character of the story of history, the main character or the star of the story of your life is God. That Jesus Christ stands at the centerpiece of all of human history. That the cross of Calvary is the watershed moment of all of history. And that today when we look at these stories that we will be asking ourselves a bigger question and that is, God, what are you revealing about yourself? And I think what we will walk away with is that Jesus reigns over disease and death. That Jesus' reign extends to encompass all things and he reigns even over disease and death. How many can say amen to that? Now, Mark tells a sandwich story, and what I mean by that is that he starts a story, inserts another story in the middle, and then wraps up the, 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 the first story that he started with. Anybody out there a storyteller like that? You got a little bit of storytelling ADHD. I mean, you start the story, get a little bit down a bunny rabbit trail, come back to the first story. If that's your spouse, do not raise your hand. But the fact of the matter is, this is no mistake or flaw in Mark. He does it six times, and it's always strategic when he does it. It's because he wants us to see the deep connection between these two stories, and it's going to be pretty hard to miss the deep connection between the stories that I'm going to read to you today. Verse 21 starts the bracket of text that we're going to look at, and it extends through verse 43. And it starts the first story with a ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. And Jairus has a daughter who's 12 years old who is sick almost to death. She is sick on the verge of dying. And he's seeking Jesus in the midst of a great crowd for his help and for his healing. We'll come back to that story. But as Jesus is going to this man's house to help him with his daughter, there's another woman who is encountered, and we pick up her story in the B part of verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me, the second half of it. And it says, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments, or his garment rather. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch him, if, if I touch rather even his garments, I will be made whole or I will be made well, some translations say. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing about you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. To understand the depths of this story, you have to understand a little bit about Israelite culture during that time. This woman's condition was as about as dire as it can get. I don't want you to first miss the obvious. The obvious is her physical challenge. She's hemorrhaging for 12 years. She's bleeding for 12 years. And she goes to doctors in order to get help. And the Bible says that she, after all of these doctor's visits, only grew worse. I don't think this is an indictment against the medical industry. I don't think this is an indictment against physicians. As a matter of fact, the Bible seems to have a sense of great esteem for physicians, so great of an esteem that Luke, who writes the third gospel in your New Testament, is a physician himself. If you're in the medical industry, you should see your calling from God as an extension of the healing ministry of Jesus. And you should approach it with such sense of calling and holiness, the same type of calling that a pastor would have, but yours is just simply to the physical body. But I think that what this text does for us is to say, in spite of the best intentions of doctors, in spite of the great advancements of medicine, that human medicine has its limitations. That there are times when doctors in all of their wisdom and all of their best efforts, the medical industry and all of its attempts to be able to bring cure and remedy will not be able to fix certain problems. Let me translate that to our time, our day, our current situation. Maybe you've come in here today with a dire circumstance and you have gone to many sources for help. Can you imagine the remedies that this woman had been given? Can you imagine, have you ever been in a situation where you were dealing with something and everybody had a recommendation on how to fix it? Everybody had what their mom did when she had the same problem. Everybody had some home remedy for you. She was exhausted at this point. Anybody ever been through something like that? Everybody have an opinion about your situation, how you could fix it, how they would fix it if they were in your shoes, but yet nothing seems to work. She only grew worse. So now she's physically exhausted and financially exhausted as well. 
And oh, by the way, let's not forget the social impact of this. If we had more time, I would take you to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 15. Now, we don't have time for me to go there, but I'm going to summarize it for you. But I want you to read it yourself. Make note of Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27 in particular. Because it's in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, where Israel is told how they must deal with a situation like this. What do you do with a woman who's bleeding beyond her menstrual cycle, her normal uh, period time? What do you do when a woman has this type of continual issue of blood, this unending hemorrhaging? Well, according to the Israelite law, she was to be deemed impure. And not only was she to be deemed impure, but everything she touched was impure. Even the bed sheets that she slept on was called a bed of uncleanliness or impurity. The garments that she wore were considered to be impure. There were certain types of washings that had to happen for the sheets, for the garments. There were certain types of washing that had to happen if you came into contact with such a woman. Can you imagine the social stigma, how her family must have treated her? Now, you may think that's severe. Why would God give such a rule? Well, it's because the law, according to Scripture, the Mosaic law, the law of the Israelite people, as we see it in the Old Testament, was a schoolmaster meant to bring us to Christ. In other words, it was given to prepare the heart to help us understand two things really clearly. The severity of sin, how, how sinful sin is, how impurity affects not only us but the people around us. You see, it was believed in that time when, that when an impure or a sick or an unclean person came into contact with a healthy person, that they transferred that uncleanliness or sickness to the healthy person. That sickness always won. And by the way, we still believe that. That's why when somebody has a cold or a flu, we try to avoid them if they tell us that they have a cold or a flu or we see all the symptoms because after all, we don't want to get sick. And if their sickness comes into contact with our health, what wins? We believe sickness wins. And for all of human history, from Adam to Jesus, this is true. But the second thing the law was intended to show us was the power of God to make clean, that he alone was able to make clean. My friends, this is what happens in this woman's story, that she comes into contact with a holy and loving God. What happens when our brokenness comes into contact with a holy and loving God? Our brokenness is fixed, not because of any home remedy, not because of any wives' tale, not because we had good luck. This woman was not healed because of good luck. She was not healed because the stars aligned. She wasn't healed because she just by chance happened to be at the right place at the right time. No, your faith has made you whole. It's your connection to Jesus that brings wholeness in your life. Maybe you're here today and you know what it's like to be physically broken, financially exhausted, socially an outcast. No, by the way, she would have been spiritually exiled as well. She wasn't even allowed to come into the fellowship of corporate worship. So here she is, no representative, all by herself. And what's going through her mind? I heard about this man, Jesus. Friends, this is why we got to talk about Jesus. We got to talk about Jesus because somebody is listening. 
Somebody is listening that you may not even know is listening. I don't know how she heard of these stories, but I am grateful that somebody in her day and her time knew enough to talk about, to boast, to make much of what Jesus has done in their life. In a culture that presses us to be silent about our faith, in a culture that says that you can talk about anything except for your religious beliefs, in a culture that says that everything is socially acceptable except for following Jesus, I tell you to do something that is countercultural, and that is to talk about him. Talk about him much, Talk about him often. Talk about him everywhere you can to everyone you can. Talk about him to your children, to your spouse, to your family members. Talk about him in texts, in phone calls, and yes, on social media. Use it all for his glory. Let's tell the world until all have heard, until Christ returns, how many are committed to talking about Jesus? They talked about it. And she heard she says, if I can just get in contact with that man, I've never met him before, but I've heard that he's a healer. I've heard that he's a restorer. I heard that he can bring peace to my body and to my soul. And I got to get to him. And maybe it was a direct conversation, or maybe it's what Lee Strobel, the great evangelist, calls a ricochet conversation. Ricochet evangelism is when you're talking to one person about Jesus, but somebody else overhears. Earlier this week, my wife and I grabbed lunch together with our youngest daughter, Christiana. I had about an hour's time, maybe less than that, and then I had a work meeting. So we went to a place close to the church. We ordered, interacted with the staff a little bit, and then we talked. We talked about what God is doing in our family. We talked about Jesus as is normal. I had to leave, they stayed, I had to get back for a meeting, and uh, my wife was there, and a young man who was at the place where we were eating comes over and says, you go to that Woodbridge church? <laughs> and she said, yeah, we do. He says, I don't live too far away. Is it safe? Tell me about it. She talks about it. He says, do you work there? He says, my husband does. He says, we're thinking about visiting. She said, you should come. He says, I think we will. We were just talking among ourselves. We weren't intending for anybody else to hear our conversation, but praise God they heard. And praise God, people are listening to you. Even when you don't know, people are listening to you. And maybe somebody with an issue of blood, maybe somebody with a broken marriage, maybe somebody with a wayward child who is exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, socially is hearing you. And maybe they'll hear your conversation and say, I don't know that man. I need to get to him though. Maybe I'll give him a try. And so she presses her way through the crowd and she does this act of faith of touching the hem of his garment, the scripture says, and immediately she was healed. And that demonstrates one of the omnis that I've been talking to you about. It demonstrates that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that again, when sickness comes into contact with a sovereign, resurrected Savior, that the Savior wins, that Jesus reigns over disease and death 
He demonstrates that again and again. And the apex of that demonstration is his own resurrection. But it also, the text, if you are a careful reader, if you are listening to me with a critical ear, it also presents a terrible dilemma. And that is, here I am boasting that Jesus is all-powerful, and I'm also boasting that he is all-knowing, but yet it's undeniable that he asks questions. And why would an all-knowing God have to ask questions? Chris Brooks, if your proposition is correct, why would he have to ask the question, who touched my garment? In verse number 30, let me answer it. When a sovereign, all-knowing Savior asks a question, it's not because he does not know the answer. It is not for his benefit. He asks the question for our benefit. I told you that when it comes to the healing ministry of Jesus, we tend to look at it from our vantage point. And what did she want? She wanted what all the crowd wanted. There was a great crowd. And the reason why they had gathered is because they wanted the miracle. It's because they wanted their need met. She wanted healing. And maybe that's why you're here. Because you got a need and you want God to meet it. And it's not wrong. They were right to throng him. They were right to pursue him. But he wants something more. He asks, who touched my garment so that she might make herself known to him? If this was just about healing, it would have already been over. The story would have ended. She had the healing. The scripture said immediately when she touched the hem of his garment, the blood stopped. She felt in her body that she, would, she was healed. And if all this was about was about her healing, if all of life is about is us getting our need met as we perceive it, then the story would end. But he recognized with her as he recognizes with us that there's a deeper need that we need, and that is the need for relationship. Her dignity had been stripped her dignity had been stripped by a sickness that isolated her socially. And so Jesus says, who did it? Not because he didn't know who did it, but so that she would be forced to introduce herself to him. And so that he would say to her, daughter, look at how he refers to her. You're not an outcast. You're not a social misfit. Misfit. You're not a problem to be fixed. You're not hated. You're not despised. You're not broken. You're my daughter. And I want you to know that your connection to me has made you whole. That woman leaves with something more than just physical healing. She leaves with her dignity. She leaves with relationship. She leaves loved. And today, what Jesus wants to do in your life and in mine is to not just fix our problems, but he wants to make us whole again. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. It was the great church father, Augustine, who said these words, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. How many thank God that you have found your rest in Jesus? Amen. So let's go back to the first story, if you will. Journey with me back to verse number 21. 
Seems a long time ago that this story started, but it's just as important as a woman with the 12-year hemorrhaging. Verse number 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now jumping down to verse number 35 as the story continues. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he enter, had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. I'm so glad he kicked them out. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was my commentary. Let me go back. And took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. This is one of the most devastating stories that any parent could ever read. My heart was wrenched all week as I was preparing for this message. Here this, this father comes to Jesus desperately, so desperate that he doesn't care what it does to him socially. He doesn't care what the other synagogue rulers think of Jesus. He doesn't care that the Pharisees had already plotted to kill him, that the Sadducees had already determined that he was not a man worthy of life. He doesn't care that all the religious leaders seem to be against Jesus. No, he comes to Jesus with his reputation on, his line, on the line. And what would cause a man to do that? It's because he loved his child. And he says to Jesus, my child is at the point of death. He uses the Greek word eschaton. It's where we get the word eschatology from. The study of end times, end things, revelation, the return of Christ. But this time he is saying, maybe it's not the end of the age, but it's certainly the end for my daughter. She is literally about to breathe her last breath. Jesus, I need you to intervene. I can't fix my child is what Jesus is saying, is what the man rather is saying to Jesus. And for every parent that is in here, for every grandparent that's in here that knows the anguish of your child facing something that is beyond your ability to fix, you can relate. Maybe it's a physical issue or maybe it's life and death itself or maybe it's a behavior them continuing in the pattern of 
hurting themselves, bad choices, broken relationships, failed jobs. And you look and you say, I've tried everything with this child. I've given him advice, I've yelled, I've prayed, I've loved, I've given him money. And yet they're at the eschaton. They're at the end of themselves. And Jesus immediately follows this dad. I love the fact that Jesus responds to the prayers of parents and grandparents. Be encouraged by that. Jesus follows this man. But as he's following the man, this woman steps in the way. And I am um, way too immature to know how I would have responded if this woman would have stepped in the way while my child was on the verge of death. I probably would have said, Jesus, <laughs> I appreciate her, but I need you. Can, can you get back to her later? But, but, but see, Jesus is big enough to minister to all of our needs. He, he doesn't lose track of me while he's caring for you. He didn't lose track of Jairus and his daughter while he's caring for the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. You see, in an auditorium like this, you can feel small. You can feel like, surely God doesn't see me or my problem or my issue. But he is big enough where he sees every one of us as if it was only one of us. What if all of this, all of the singing, all of the service, what if all of this was put together just for you? For God to be able to say to you, I see you. He does. And so he heals the woman and he goes back to help Jairus. But while he's walking, a conversation ensues. Some servants come from Jairus' house and say words that no parent ever wants to hear. Words that if you ever hear them, you will never forget them. The words were, your child is dead. There's no fixing the situation. It's too far gone. That's the story of human history, isn't it? That when death shows up, that's the end of the story. Again, from Adam to Jesus, death rules, death reigns. When death enters into the picture, the story ends. Death's hand is raised in the middle of the ring and death is crowned the victor. That is the way human history unfolds. All until Christ. What is powerful about this moment is Christ shows that he has power even over death. And as if they had not said anything, Jesus says to the man, let's keep going. And the man says, I'll follow you. I, I don't know why I'm following you except for that you told me because in a natural sense, I have no reason to believe my child can come back from this. Drug abuse. I don't believe my child could come back from this. Jail. I don't believe my child could come back from this. Brokenness. I don't believe my child could come back from this. Death. Whatever it is, we all who are parents know what it's like to be at a point where you're wondering, can my child come back from this? Jesus gets to the house. There's a commotion. There's all of this wailing. Some of them were sincere, but some of them were professional mourners. That's what you did in that culture. You hired mourners when you thought a person was important to show how important they were because look at how many people are mourning. Jesus comes to the spectacle and he's not impressed. And he says, why are you mourning? Why are you wailing? The girl is just sleeping. To show that they weren't sincere, immediately the scripture says, they go from wailing to laughing. 
They're literally ridiculing him. He does what I love. He kicks them out. Praise God when God kicks people out of your life. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but he says to the parents, you stay. To his disciples, you stay. And he goes and he picks this girl's hand up. And she is healed and she is brought to life. Your children can live again. God is able to restore even our kids. Praise God for that. And the scripture includes this little nugget that seems almost like a throwaway statement that she was 12 years of age. And why? Why include that? It's the same reason you include that the woman was bleeding for 12 years. For 12 years, this woman had lost out on life, relationship, social advancement. For 12 years, it seemed like her future was cut off. And this girl, for 12 years, she had lived the whole time while this woman was bleeding and her future was cut off. Jesus restores the woman's future. And this young girl, whose future was seemingly cut off, no marriage, no motherhood, no celebrations in the future. Jesus restores her future. And maybe you feel like your future is cut off. I didn't get the job. I didn't get into the college I wanted to. I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get the opportunity. The doors weren't open to me. My future is cut off. Jesus restores futures. And he restores this girl's future. And he says to her, get up. And he tells them, feed her. She got a lot of life to live and she's going to need to be strong to live here. How many praise God that death didn't win? How many thank God that Jesus reigns over death? But again, I'd be dishonest if I didn't acknowledge the dilemma in the text. And it's a dilemma that not everyone would know, but some will. If you've ever been that desperate parent, spouse, child, who have cried out for a loved one who is facing the end of life or a desperate situation and it didn't look like Jesus healed, what about us? Is there a promise for us? Were our cries not loud enough? Were our prayers not effective enough? Did Jesus heal one and ignore others? The answer is no. There is a promise for us, and the promise is the resurrection. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus heals everyone who calls upon his name. Either he heals them immediately, or he heals them ultimately. And I want to show you just one verse of scripture. My time is limited, but I need to read this one to you. Revelation chapter 21, verse number four says this about the resurrection the coming of Christ, and the promise of healing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse number four. And death shall be no more. I'll read that again. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Praise be unto God that Jesus heals, that death is defeated, and that the resurrection is our hope. Well, there's one final statement here. Not only does he restore dignity, resurrect life, but he also leaves the world amazed. Look at the end of verse number 42. And they were immediately overcome with amazement 
And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to go to, uh, rather, to give her something to eat. They were immediately overcome with amazement. Why were they so amazed? It's because they had just seen the story of somebody going from death to life. Friends, I tell you right now that the world is still amazed at our stories of going from death to life. This is why I charge you to tell your testimony and keep telling your testimony because it will leave people in amazement. Maybe you feel like mine isn't that great. Let God deal with that fact. You just be faithful in telling the story so that others may hear it and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Again, until all have heard, until Christ returns. Tell your kids, tell your family members, tell your neighbors, your coworkers, and even today as you leave this place, I charge you to tell somebody what God has done in your life and watch him leave them in amazement, draw them to himself, and transform their life as well.